New information that oral infection with human papillomavirus 16, which is the type of HPV most frequently linked to HPV-driven head and neck cancers, was more likely to persist 12 or more months in men older than 45 than in those younger than 45. That's information that is published in the Cancer Prevents and Research. It's a journal of the American Association for Cancer Research, and it really brings up an interesting topic that we can deal with in depth. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. Today we have a very special guest. It's Gregory Weinstein. He's a physician who is the director of Penn Center for Head and Neck Cancer. And Dr. Weinstein, first of all, welcome to the program. Thanks, Brian. Good to be here. You know, there's a lot of attention, obviously, in in the general public, stories about Michael Douglas developing throat cancer and human papillomavirus, lots of fears, a lot of concerns. First of all, tell me a little bit about HPV and its incidence and how often this occurs and to what extent. So... HPV-related cancers came to our attention about a decade ago. And at that time, there were about 5,000 head and neck cancers related to human papillomavirus uh, in the United States. And then over the ensuing few years, uh, we now see um, upwards of about 12,000 of these uh, cancers. And we're predicting by 2020, it could be as high as 20,000 of these cancers. So We're in the midst of an epidemic of these cancers, and uh, presently uh, the number of HPV-related oropharyngeal cancers are just about the same as the number of cervical cancers uh, that are caused by HPV. Now, one of the things we're realizing is when we're dealing with female patients and HPV and screening, a lot of new information, relatively new as far as early detection and screening. For instance, what we've learned in Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think what we learned pretty much is that in the age group up to age 21 now, uh, they're, they're not even saying to test for HPV at that point because it comes and it goes, and that over 21, uh, especially if you have someone who's sexually active, there's increased chance they begin talking about testing for it, but certainly not as aggressive as before because they believe that in many cases, even these aggressive forms could come and go. Is, is that pretty much true? It's, it's pretty transient in some cases? So actually, we don't know that about head and neck uh, HPV. See, the difference between cervical HPV and head and neck HPV is that women have a screening test that they can do, which is pap smear. That's been around for quite a long time. And pap smear can check for abnormal cells in the, uh, on the cervix and the surface of the cervix. And then if they can persist being abnormal, um, we can do HPV testing on those. Now, in the head and neck area presently, there is no early detection methodology. So how it tends to present in the head and neck is lumps in the neck. So it's, it's by default these cancers are presenting as advanced stage cancers in either stage 3 or stage 4 by the fact that they're silent in the throat, they tend to be small and occur in the tonsils and the tongue base, and they present as a neck mass. Now, taking a couple more steps, because it is a fascinating topic, it, the vaccines that teens are using, obviously, uh, they're now uh, for young girls and for young boys, they're trying to really knock down the numbers in those early age groups by having vaccines such as Gardasil and Zervix and others. That, that theoretically in 20, 30 years potentially could be helpful, but that's a long way off now, right? Well, here's the problem with that, is that we, we don't have obligatory vaccination for HPV. And last year, only about 30% of girls got all the full triple complement of HPV 
the vaccine, and only about 7% of boys. Now, it takes about 55% of girls to get um, the full complement of vaccine uh, to have what's called herd immunity. Right. And then, it, then basically um, there will be enough girls that will be vaccinated that boys wouldn't get it either. But presently we're only at about 30% for girls and only 7% for boys. So that's not going to be an effective way to deal with this presently um, unless we change our public policy. So we're looking at a situation where at least presently, as you say, even in the best case scenario, you change policy, you impact those changes, and they have a degree of success. You're still talking 20, 30 years down the line well, where it might every, show up. All the teens and, um, and, and, in fact, everybody up until now will simply – this won't have any impact or significant right. impact on them because too few people are being vaccinated. So, unfortunately, that's not a good strategy at present. Sure. So – Absent that strategy and absent a good test right now to be able to detect it, where are we with it right now when it comes to uh, head and neck cancer and, and, and these issues in particular with HPV? In, in early detection. Yeah. So uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, where I'm the co-director of the Penn Center for Head and Neck Cancer, we're about to start an, um, st- the first stage of, of a exciting study in which there is a blood test that's available that tests that is um, testing for one of the oncoproteins that's created when the virus insinuates itself into the DNA of the tonsil and the tongue base. And that's, there, are, there are a couple of oncoproteins, but the key oncoprotein that's been shown in some studies to be important is the E6 oncoprotein. So if the E6 oncoprotein is positive, there's some studies that seem to indicate that there could be as high as a 20% chance that uh, patients are going to get or a pharyngeal cancer, or cancers of the tonsil, the tongue base. Now, the question becomes how to study this. These studies are very early, but one way we're going to study it is uh, to look at uh, the tonsillar tissue from patients that are, we're going to test patients for E6 oncoprotein antibody, which means that they probably have the DNA of the HPV virus integrated into their DNA of their cells, and they're on the road to getting cancer. So we're going to test patients that presently are undergoing sleep apnea surgery at the University of Pennsylvania, and we're going to expand that to other institutions. Now, sleep apnea surgery, what you do is you take out the tonsils, and then using the da Vinci surgical system and techniques that we developed at the University of Pennsylvania, you also take out the tongue-based tonsils. People don't realize there's tonsils in your tongue base and tonsils at the side of your throat. And so Essentially, these patients are coming to have that operation anyway because right. that's their operation for sleep apnea, and they're at the exact right age group and uh, sex distribution. About 85% of those patients are men. The average age of patients that undergo sleep apnea surgery are about 52. The average age of onset of uh, HPV-related or pharyngeal cancer is 59. So we're going we're gonna to be doing testing of these patients and then looking at their tissue, and this will be the first study in the world to actually correlate uh, the E6 oncoprotein with findings microscopically in the tonsils and the tongue base. So this is pretty exciting. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. My guest is Dr. Gregory Weinstein, who is the director of Penn Center for Head and Neck Cancer. We're talking about his research right now, and it is fascinating, and it obviously provides potentially some hope. A couple questions about how these patients may acquire it. is it mostly through oral sex? Is that the most common route that we're seeing the spread? And if it is, is it 
latent for 20 years. I mean, I read one report where it can stay for four years. I mean, do we have any idea when these people first acquire it and how it becomes problematic? Studies have correlated um, the incidence of um, HPV-related more infringial cancer uh, with um, numerous vaginal sexual partners, oral sexual partners, um, smoking pot uh, seems to be associated with it. So, so these are, the, you know, the, the most common is it takes fewer oral sex partners than it does vaginal sex partners to uh, become infected. And what is the time frame? Um, is this something so that... Th- this, is, this is somewhat unknown, but if it's similar to cervical cancer, there was a very unethical trial done a number of years ago in uh, New Zealand where a, a gynecologist unethically uh, took women who had cervical dysplasia, treated half of them, didn't treat the other half of them without informed consent. Wow. And then, well, he lost his job, naturally. Yeah. Um, but many years later, about three decades later, the Supreme Court of New Zealand opened up the data, and what they found was that of the group that wasn't treated, uh, about 30% of them went on to get cervical cancer. And it took about 30 years. So at 30 years was the number. So although we don't know with certainty um, how long it takes to get actual cancer, if it's similar to cervical cancer, it's probably going to be decades. So However, if, yeah. in cervical cancer, if you have HPV virus that persists over the course of it, over a one-year period, um, then they have about a 30% chance of getting um, pre-malignancy. Now, in, in the cervix, it's not too hard to figure out who has pre-malignancy because the, the dysplasia occurs on the surface of a relatively flat organ that has crypts in it, but they're not very deep. Right. The problem with the tonsils and the tongue base is that the crypts can be two centimeters long, and the, like in the cervix, the cancers begin in the very bottom of these crypts. So there's no way to do a, a kind of a pap smear of the throat because you can't reach down there. But what we can do is take out the tonsils. And that's a very low-risk procedure. And I guess the question would be, if you knew you had a 20% risk of of getting a cancer, if you had a blood test that showed that, would you be willing to get your tonsils out? Probably most people would say yes. Sure. So the the hope for the future, what what we see as a potential holy grail, is showing that there's a correlation between E6 oncoprotein and pathology, whether it's pre-malignancy or cancer, in the tonsils. And then we can start to think about coming up with a trial where we can test of the right age group because 85% of these cancers occur in men. And then ultimately, as the kind of the equivalent of conization of the cervix, take out their tongue-based and palatine tonsils with very little side effect. And we know this because we do this for sleep apnea, and there's very little side effects associated with that. Now, again, is that the area it is most likely to aggressively attack, much like it attacks the cervix in the woman? It's the tonsils. Palatine tonsils, which are on the side of the throat that the doc sees when they look in the mouth, mm-hmm. and the tongue-based tonsils, which are the very back of the tongue. That is where 96% of the cancers uh, occur in the oral cavity and oropharynx. So it's an important, obviously, the research you're doing is extremely important because there's no other way to really tell until more or less the cat's out of the bag and it's spread and it's far more Correct. aggressive at that point. Correct. One of the pathologists that Penn I'm working with has is, is the, really the only study that has shown pre-malignancy in the tonsils by looking at kind of a general population of tonsils and studying their tonsils and testing for HPV-related pre-malignancy. We're going to take it a step further and correlate it with a blood test that might might be predictive. The beauty of it is it would be almost impossible to do this study given our state of knowledge about the E6 oncoprotein 
taking volunteers to just take their tonsils out, but because we have a patient population that that's already done on, we feel we can now uh, utilize, just do a, a tack on of a, a blood test and then study them and then see what we find in the pathology sure. and, study, and do a more thorough analysis of the tonsillar pathology. Another question about the epidemiology, and forgive me if it's foolish, but we know the number of cervical cancer cases, and we know it's pretty dramatic, especially in we've linked it with HPV. Uh, as far as this form of head and neck cancer, um, in, in that is that something that has matched the numbers over the years? In other words, do we see it, or is it less over the last, let's say, 30 years than in the cases of females with cervical cancer? Well, let's put it a different The smoker's cancers, which are the most common cancers that we used to see in the tonsil and the tongue base, are on the decline, and HPV-related cancers in the tonsil and the tongue base are on the rise. And we're expecting in a a short while that over the half of the cancers that we see in the head and neck and the throat, I should say, are going to be related to HPV and are going to be in the tonsils or the tongue base. So it's a relatively new phenomenon. Why do you think it wasn't occurring at to the level of 25, 30 years ago, or are we just not recognizing it? No, because we went back and looked at, at banked tissue. So we know that it wasn't there. It's pro- Honestly, it's probably related to the sexual revolution in the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. And a more, more potential chance for spread and for uh, being exposed to it. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you think is important to bring yes. up for our audience? Yes, I think you, I, I would like to mention that one of the key uh, things about treating HPV-related cancer once you have it is that the, the standard treatment of high-dose chemotherapy and radiation is extremely intense, has tremendous side effects in terms of long-term swallowing outcomes. So there's been numerous what's called de-intensification trials that have tried to de-intensify the high-dose radiation and chemotherapy that you get to treat this, particularly since it occurs in relatively healthy young men who are in their 40s and 50s. So what we have done, um, over a decade ago, we developed transor robotic surgery using the Da Vinci surgical system. My partner and I, Bert O'Malley, developed these techniques, and we have trained over 350 surgeons worldwide to do um, these surgeries, and the, uh, it is a great approach for deintensification treatment because in a significant number of patients, you can avoid radiation therapy entirely, and in about 40% of patients, you avoid chemotherapy it's FDA cleared as of 2009, and we want to make sure the public is aware that when you have HPV-related cancer, this is an excellent option for treatment. It's really available worldwide right now. Well, Dr. Gregory Weinstein, we've run out of time. I want to thank you so much for joining and sharing your insights on primary care today. It was a fascinating interview. I learned a lot, and I hope our audience did as well. Brian, thanks so much. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed part of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com slash Today to download the podcast and learn more on this series. Thanks again for listening.